Hey, well, welcome back to Grumlaw Church. We are so glad that, again, all of you decided to make that long trek to your computer, your phone, your TV, or your tablet to attend church this morning. We're, we're glad you could make it. Uh, actually, what I've really been pleased to see over these past uh, couple of weeks, you know, since we've been completely online, is that a good number of you are actually still finding a way to be late. Way to go. We are really, really excited that you all are keeping up that Sunday morning tradition. Keep it alive. Uh, but seriously, we really are so glad all of you decided to carve out some time and spend it here with us, uh, especially, especially if this is your first time joining us or, or maybe you checked us out last week for Easter and, and you're back again. We don't take that for granted that you would decide to carve out a part of your Sunday and spend it here with us. Uh, now, re- really more than ever, it, it's so, so important that we push back against isolation. And we fight for community wherever we can find it. And obviously, these Sunday mornings are just kind of one tangible way that we can make that happen. I've been really, really excited for today as we're going to continue the conversation that we actually began last week around this guy who went by the name of Jesus. Yes, like God in the flesh, Jesus. He was a real person who who walked the earth a couple thousand years ago. And, And as we discovered last week, Jesus, during his relatively short amount of time on earth, during that three year ministry, he he had a knack for predicting the unpredictable and, and pulling off the unthinkable. Uh, Most notably, as we began to dissect and we opened up last week, he he predicted his own death and and resurrection and then actually pulled that off. And, and, And here's what's so, so important. We don't believe that because an old book tells us so. We, we, we believe that because countless eyewitnesses tell us that, again, this stuff actually happened. We, we, we believe because those same eyewitnesses, when Jesus was nailed to and killed on a cross, every single one of them, they all ran away. That they, they all lost faith. That there were, in fact, no Christians. Every one of Jesus' followers, even his closest friends, his family members, even those 12 guys that he spent virtually every single waking moment with, they all abandoned him. Christianity, as we know it, was dead. But, and and you probably figured there was a but, otherwise we wouldn't be gathering right now. Just days later, after Jesus was killed, these same cowards that headed for the hills, these same cowards that lost faith, well, they're back. <laughs> so what the heck? I mean, you got to ask the question, so what happened? Be- be- because something had to have happened to take a group of people from completely out to completely abandoning all of it to suddenly willing to die and most, in fact, would be eventually killed for their faith in Jesus. And, and believe it or not, and you don't have to take my word for it, go research this stuff for yourself. The most reasonable explanation is, in fact, that Jesus rose from the dead, that, that, that he pulled off what he had been predicting all along. Now, the, the reason that, that we're bringing all of this up right now, besides the fact that last week was Easter, and it's kind of why we celebrate Easter in the first place, but, but perhaps even more than that, even more pertinent to what we're experiencing in our world right now, is all of the, what I like to call, Christian motivational talk going on. There, there's a lot of faith over fear, and, and faith crushes fear, and, and faith dominates fear, and again, if that's provided inspiration for you, again, more power to you, and, and while these things might sound nice, I, I kind of confessed to you last week that I don't really know what this stuff means. 
Because I personally, I'm not going to speak for you, but for me, I don't have faith for faith's sake. I don't think you should either. I don't believe for the sake of belief. I don't just have this this confidence that it's all just going to work out in the end. No, no, I have confidence even in the midst of the crazy times that we're living in right now because of what happened on a cross and even more specifically in a grave a couple thousand years ago. I love this quote by Frank Turek, who's an author and apologetic. For those of you that don't know what an apologetic is, that basically means the defender of of the Christian faith. He, He says this, he says, the reason so many people are easily talked out of Christianity, and maybe that describes you, is because they were never talked into it in the first place. His point is that Christianity is not a blind faith. Even though, unfortunately, that is how it is so often presented. Jesus followers shouldn't just be a bunch of wishful thinkers. Because again, after all, we put our faith in a risen Savior who predicted his own death, who predicted his own resurrection, and then he actually pulled that off. But but, but see, the problem is, is that so many of you, so many of you watching right now, you grew up in religious environments where you were just told to, to have faith, brother. You, you just got to have faith, sister. And, and that might work just fine for you while you're a little kid, but eventually you grow up. Eventually you're watching right now. You grew up. Eventually you had that college professor. Eventually you read that book. Eventually, come on, you experienced a crisis, much like the one that we're experiencing right now. And and that whole faith for the sake of faith, that whole just believe brother, just believe sister, all of that sort of fell apart. And, And it fell apart because you were never talked into it in the first place. See, if you were to tell people like Paul and Mark and Peter and Luke and Matthew and John, these guys that spent time with Jesus, these guys that experienced these signs, these miracles firsthand, if you would have told those men, hey, you just got to believe, brothers, they would have looked at you sideways. I I assume they would have started laughing, that they would look at you and say, no, you don't. Did did, did you even read the stuff that we recorded for you in this book that we call the Bible? In in fact, John, who who recorded what he heard and and what he saw during the time that he spent with Jesus, and John, just in case you don't know, he was one of the 12 disciples, again, one of those guys that spent virtually every waking moment when when he was on earth here with Jesus. He, He actually says this right at the end of the document that he records for us, aptly titled John. It says the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. Now, now when John's referencing book right here, he's not talking about this big book that we call the Bible. He's just referring to his specific document where he recorded what he observed, where he recorded what he heard, where he recorded what he saw, what he learned from Jesus. And he goes, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's actually a lot of other stuff that we saw as well. But these are written, his document, these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing in him, you will have life, life to the full by the power of his name. See, Jesus, if you're not too familiar with him, he had a knack for pulling off a lot of these he did what moments while he was on earth. 
We, we kind of traditionally refer to those moments as, as miracles, but as you can see here, that's not actually what John calls them. He, he refers to them instead as signs. Signs that you too, you who are watching right now, might believe. And, and again, not believe for the sake of belief, but, but believe because this stuff actually happened. Now, real quick, before we go on, I want to point out something to all of you that you actually basically already know, which is, by the way, basically all I do here on Sunday mornings. Central to our discussion in this series, uh, where we're looking at these miracles, where we're looking at these signs from Jesus, are these words that we've actually already touched on. In fact, it would be really, really strange if we went an entire Sunday without mentioning these words, these words, faith, belief. And what I want to do here for just a moment is remove the religious cloud from these words because... I'm proposing this to you, and it might sound strange to you. They're not really religious words. I mean, think about it. We believe based on evidence. What you see, what you read, what you hear, what you observe, or we we also believe based on confidence in the person that's delivering the information. For, For instance, at some point when you were in elementary school, you were taught that four times four equals 16. Now, I doubt any of you watching right now, you went home after your teacher told you that and you got four rows of four stuffed animals and you went one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. You gotta be kidding me. She was actually right. No, no, you didn't do that because you had confidence in your teacher. You had confidence in the person delivering the information. Now, now here's why I bring that up. In the real world, we all know what it means to have faith. We all know what it means to have a belief in something. But but what happens when we take those words and we drop them into the context of Christianity, when we take those words and we drop them into the context of religion, they should not. They should not suddenly take on new meaning, even though they so often do. Or, Or you could say it this way, religious faith and belief are often divorced from reason and confused with, with just hope, a, a hope that it's all just going to work out. And, and again, I'm telling you, th- this should not be the case. The, the, the writers of these books that we refer to as the Gospels, they're the first four books of the New Testament, which is kind of the second half of the Bible, these, these books that we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that document the life of Jesus. The, the, the writers of those four documents would be ripping their hair out that this right here is the case for so many people who would identify as Christians. See, see, we're seeing in our world right now, and this probably describes a good number of you who are tuning in right now, a, a lot of people who are looking for answers. Because see, a lot of earthly comforts are being stripped away, and, and people are recognizing that void that, that's actually always been there, but again, now it's just becoming a lot more obvious. It's just becoming a lot more glaring. So, so, see, you're looking for hope. You're, you're looking for answers. You're looking for a peace. You're looking for something or perhaps even someone to fill that void. And, and I would tell you, I think you've come to the right place. And again, it's not faith for the sake of faith. It is way better than that. As Jesus followers, we're not grasping at straws. It's not blind hope. No, no, we're trusting in something that has already happened. We're putting our faith in a someone, a someone who lives. 
You you are invited by Jesus to believe in him, to fill that void permanently, to, to experience peace no matter the circumstances around us, to have, as John puts it, life and life to the full, but by the power of his name. And you're not being called to this belief that is divorced from reason. It's not some blind hope. It's belief. It is faith based on evidence. It's faith, it's belief based on confidence in the person who is delivering the information. And so, with all of that as the backdrop, we're going to continue to look at in this series some of these he did what moments. Some of these miracles, some of these signs, as John puts it, recorded for us in these documents that come again right at the beginning of the New Testament, these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that document the life of Jesus. And specifically today, we're going to be taking a look at the first miracle that actually Jesus performed during his earthly ministry. And remember, as we look at this miracle, you all have the benefit of hindsight. Every single one of you watching, hopefully you joined us last week for Easter, you all know how this story ends. You know that eventually Jesus is killed, but three days later he rises from the dead. So so I think in light of that information, it should make these miracles come to life even more. It, It should cause all of us to lean in even more. Because if Jesus really did successfully predict his own death and resurrection, we would be fools to not pay careful attention to what else he said, to what else he did. So here we're going to run to John's account, the very first earthly miracle that Jesus performed. And and wouldn't you know it, John was actually there present for it. We go to John chapter two, verse one. It says, the next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Again, as you read through these gospel accounts, as you read through these four books, you're often given details like this that you're like, why did they even include this stuff? But they include this stuff because it's not a once upon a time. This stuff isn't fairy tale. It actually happened. And what we're about to find out right here is that Mary, referred to here as Jesus' mother, was a part of the hosting group and actually had a very specific role to play within this wedding celebration. Continues, it says, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. Now, again, this is a significant detail because we are told by this that the disciples were invited, that John, who, who gives us this account that we're reading from right now, was actually there. He, he didn't hear this from somebody else. No, like he witnessed this stuff right in front of his very eyes. Now, back at this point in history, wedding celebrations, they lasted days, not hours. Which makes what's about to happen here next a much bigger catastrophe than if it was to occur at a wedding in present day, even though for some of you it would probably spell the end of the world for you if this happened at your wedding as well. It says the wine supply ran out, I mean, oh my goodness, end of the world, during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told him they have no more wine. I mean, your wedding just ran out of booze. Oh my gosh, are these people even going to talk to you again? Because what in the heck are you about to do at a wedding if there is no booze? So naturally, as you might assume, this is a very embarrassing moment for the host. The the, the wine has ran out. And so Mary turns to her son, Jesus. She, She somehow knew that in the face of a crisis, she could look at her very resourceful son for help. 
which I don't know about you, it kind of makes me wonder how she knew that Jesus might be able to help in this situation, right? I mean, what, what else was Jesus bailing Mary out of, you know, as like they were growing up and, and, and living together? Uh, I, I am like a sucker for bowls of cereal at night. I, I'd like to tell you that I only eat it like every once in a while, but it's almost like every night I either eat a bowl or a cup of cereal, often a mug, because that makes me feel better that it's like supposedly terrible to like eat at night. I don't really know who says that, but a lot of people seem to say that. But anyway, so uh, about every other week I have this moment. You've probably experienced this moment as well where I go and I'm excited. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm hungry. It's 10 o'clock at night and I'm pouring my bowl of cereal and I pour it in there and then I go to the fridge and I open it up and I grab the milk carton and it is like light, like really light. I don't know who's doing it, but I just assume there's some burglar breaking into our house on a regular basis, pouring out 99% of the milk and just leaving just a fraction just to irritate me. And so then I have to play that whole, you know, song and dance where I'm like trying to pour the bowl back into the box and it's spilling all over the place. And I'm like cursing everything in the world because I'm so irritated in that moment. Well, I tell you that because I doubt Mary ever had that moment. You know, she pours her bowl of cereal and she's out of milk and she probably just looked at Jesus, right? And was like, hey, Jesus, like, we're running out of milk, and I don't know exactly how to do it. If you want, I'll kind of turn my back. Like, you just go ahead and do your thing over there. We need some more milk. So, it's so all that. Jesus responds to this request by saying, Dear woman, dear woman, that is not our problem. My time has not yet come. Now, as a side note here, sons, daughters, husbands, I would not recommend employing this response with your mother, with your wife. I cannot imagine that that would go very well for you. Now, the more literal translation right here that we see for dear woman, again, Jesus is in a formal setting at this wedding. The more literal translation would be my lady. Jesus is going, my lady, I have come to save the world, not weddings. This, come on, mom, this wasn't supposed to be like my first miracle. It's not very messianic. Moms have a way of doing this, right? When, when they ask you to do something, you just tend to act. You just tend to go along with it. As I was writing this, as I was preparing this message, it made me think, prior to this, I've, I've shared about this. Prior to becoming a pastor, I, was, uh, I worked more in corporate America. And, and my dress code basically every day was, you know, like a suit and tie, you know. If I wasn't wearing a suit coat, I was still at least wearing a dress shirt and a tie. And uh, my mom's favorite activity in the entire world is, is water skiing. She absolutely loves to water ski, but because we live in Michigan, she only gets to do it for a handful of months a year. And man, does she ever get her skiing in during those couple of months where it's actually warm enough to go in the lakes. And, and so what my mom often does is she tries to rope her children, she tries to rope her husband into pulling her water skiing. My, my parents are fortunate enough to live across the street from a lake, and the person over there allows them to keep the boat in the water. And so this happened all the time previously when I used to live a little bit closer to my parents. I only lived about 10 minutes away. I, I would like almost religiously get these phone calls just about every single day, four or five o'clock would roll around. It was my mom. Now, I was tempted every single time to just blatantly ignore the phone calls, but because it's your mama, you just tend to answer, even though you know exactly what she's going to be asking, and there she would be at the other end of the line, she'd try to make small talk, and I'd just be like, Mom, cut to the chase, what do you want? And she'd go, hey, would, would you mind swinging by the house on the way home and, and maybe pulling me skiing real quick? And everything inside of me wanted to say, no, Mom, I'm not doing this, I'm not pulling you skiing again, I'm in my dress clothes, it's hot, I've worked a long day, no, but because she's mama, I would go... Okay, mom, I'll be right over. And in 90 degree heat, I'd be ripping around a lake at 35 miles an hour with my tie flapping in the wind because mama said so. So I got to think that Mary, the mother of Jesus, probably smiles and she turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. And then she just like whisks away. 
Now, as alluded to, this is kind of a strange first miracle. It's kind of a bizarre first sign. I mean, Jesus isn't healing anyone. It's, it's not like a blind person suddenly receives sight. But, but I'm sure, I'm positive that at some point it dawned on John just how significant this moment was. It might not have been in that exact moment. Shoot, it might have been way later on when John was finally recording and documenting all this stuff. But at some point, the light bulb clicked on and it hit John just what Jesus had done and the significance of this moment. He, he, he knew that this was actually the perfect moment for the introduction to the message of Jesus. Standing nearby, were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. See, the Jewish law would stipulate that Jewish people must participate in certain ceremonial washing to remain ceremonial clean. Being ceremonial clean in the Jewish community is a big, big deal. And these empty jars, and this is why right here this is so significant, these empty jars were icons. These stone jars were icons representing the covenant, representing the tradition that Jesus had came to replace. And I'm telling you guys that this is so, so brilliant. Jesus decides to go public, but by using something that would soon be replaced to point to someone who would soon be put in place. God's temporary covenant God's temporary arrangement with the nation of Israel was coming to an end, and and these jars represented that entire sacrificial system. Something new had come because someone new was on the scene. I love how F.F. Bruce describes this. He's a famous theologian. He writes all these commentaries on, on the Bible and his commentary on the Gospel of John. He says, The water provided for purification as laid down by Jewish law and custom stands for the whole ancient order of Jewish ceremony, which Christ was to replace with something better. There's all this foreshadowing happening that nobody would have initially caught But at some point, John goes, oh my gosh. He realizes what's happening here. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. And when the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. And so the servants followed his instructions. The the, the master of ceremonies was basically the head waiter, the the maitre d' in charge of serving all of the guests. And it says, when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. Now, Now, right there, that's the he did what moment? That's the miracle. That's the moment where all of our jaws should be dropping. But again, John, he just kind of breezes past it. And he does this intentionally because at this point in the history of our world, at this point in the history of Christianity, everybody would have already known the punchline. When John finally got around to recording all of this stuff down, people would have been familiar with Christianity back in this ancient Mediterranean world, and they definitely would have been familiar with this miracle. So it's almost like he's like, is this even worth mentioning? Because everybody already knows what Jesus did here. But but just in case you aren't familiar with this event, Jesus just turned a whole mess of water into wine. Pretty impressive. It says a host always serves the best wine first. This is that head waiter saying this. Then 
When everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you, this is very, very strange, you have kept the best until now. Now, I guarantee that all of you who are watching right now, you have a little bit more of a theologian inside of you than you ever knew because you actually are tracking exactly with what's going on here. It's precisely what it sounds like. Bring out the crummy wine after people are a little bit intoxicated and they will not be any wiser. So so you you give the guests the two-hearted ale early on and then you roll out the natty ice a little bit later when everybody's good and tipsy. But but the maitre d' is going, this is strange. This is very, very bizarre. You served... Out of order. You, you served the cheap stuff first, and, and now you've decided to bust out the good stuff. You, you have saved the best until now. And God did as well. The, the, the sacrificial system set the stage for the new that was coming. Just like the original wine set the stage for the better wine that was to come later, in the same way God through the nation of Israel set the stage for the one who was to come later. See, Jesus was saying even though nobody would have initially caught it, something new and better. Something new and better has arrived. You know, this was more than a miracle. This was a sign. There was so much foreshadowing, and and nobody would fully understand this until later. But but again, all of you who are tuning in right now, you have the benefit of hindsight. You you know how this story ends. You, You know this ends with God in the flesh dying on a cross, dying for your sin, becoming the once and for all sacrifice that so that you can experience new life but that three days later he would rise from the grave. Here's how our story wraps up. It says, the, this miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. And don't miss this. And his disciples believed in him. And, and this is so, 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 so important. So if you've been like navigating over to other screens and you're like watching other services or maybe you're doing some shopping on Amazon, just bring it in here for just a second. They did not, the disciples, they did not believe because they saw some sort of a self-helpy post on Instagram. They, they, they did not believe because somebody slapped them on the back and said, come on, you just need to have faith, brother. No, no, no they believed because of what they saw. They, they believed because of what they witnessed. And fortunately for all of us, they wrote it down so that you, yes, you watching right now, so that you might believe. Because there was a reason to believe. And you'll see this all throughout these eyewitness accounts to Jesus' life. You'll see this all throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Please don't take my word for it. Read this stuff for yourself. Never are you asked to believe without evidence or without confidence in the person that's delivering the information. Now, I want to draw our attention to this really quick. Unlike John, our faith typically does not come from seeing. 
Now, 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 there are exceptions to this. Maybe you, for instance, you met somebody that was just so different from other people that you've met in your life. I mean, they just had this it factor, and, and you wanted it. Even though you didn't really know what it was, it was just like you were drawn to it. And so you saw something in that person, you pulled them aside, and they told you that the it factor was Jesus. And that's how you came to faith. Great. But, but for most of us, that's just not how it works. For, for, for most of us, we come to faith by hearing. We, we are invited to believe by hearing the testimony of those who are actually there. People that spent time with Jesus in the flesh. People like John. In fact, because of what John heard, because of what he saw, because of what he witnessed, even in the, the face of massive persecution that he would see later on in his life, even though this whole mess of, message of Christianity got flipped on its head and it was very unpopular to be a Christian, even though he was likely the last living disciple, that all the other ones had been martyred, all the other ones had died, been killed, even being aware of the destruction of ancient Judaism, even knowing that he soon would probably too be martyred, he gives us these words, which I almost guarantee you that you have heard before. At some point you stumbled across this. It's perhaps the most popular piece of scripture in the entire Bible. We find it in John 3.16. It says, for God so loved the world. He's John writing this. That he gave his one, his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And, and, and that whoever, it, it includes you. And listen, I get it. I get it if you're skeptical, if it sounds like a fairy tale, if this sounds too good to be true. I mean, eternal life. John, come on. How could you say such a thing? And, and John would reply with, because of what? I saw, because of what I witnessed, because of what I experienced with this guy who went by the name of Jesus. See, because of what we're experiencing in our world right now, a lot of us, a lot of people are looking for answers. In fact, for some of you watching right now, is that search for answers, that the re that's the reason you're even tuning in right now. We're, we're, we're looking for hope. We, we want that peace that we see in some other people. And, and John would tell you that that's not some fantasy. In fact, it's not something, it's a, it's a someone, it's Jesus. But, but please, I'm begging you, don't believe in Jesus because it sounds nice. Don't believe in Jesus because this just this morning happened to be the random click of the mouse in your search for answers. Believe because of what has been documented by John and so many others. But believe because of what happened. Again, John's words, we explored these at the beginning. These are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing in him, you will have life and life to the full by the power of his name. If this crisis right now, as you searching for answers, I, I, I want to invite you to keep exploring. Because that life, that peace, that contentment that John is alluding to, it's available to you. It's available to everyone. It's an invitation that God extends to every person who is watching right now. My, my prayer, full disclosure, why we even exist as a church is that you too might believe. 
and experience that new, better life in Jesus. But not because you believe for the sake of belief, but because of what happened. Because of what Jesus did for you.